Thank you, Pastor Chad, for that prayer of supplication, and Amy for that beautiful medley in our offertory. Thank you all for being here this morning. Praise the Lord. I'm just curious, as we begin to embark upon a series of messages from the book of Psalms, how many of you, on a regular basis, find yourself going back to the Psalms or to the Psalms as a part of your devotion reading? You find yourself in there? Okay. The rest of you, it's in the middle of your Bible. That, you know. <laughs> It, it, it's, almost, it's almost synonymous with devotions. So many times uh, we'll find ourselves in devotional, if you use like the, the bread of life or the uh, daily bread rather, uh, or some of these devotional guides, you'll find yourself in the Psalms. They just seem to naturally fit with that time that you would want to spend alone with God and, and letting the Word of God just kind of massage your soul. And, and there's such a wonderful range of topics and, and emotions and situations that you can relate to. And so many wonderful messages packed within this, this uh, great book of the Bible. And, and a lot of people just find themselves when they're just wanting to read something from the Bible to let God speak to their hearts will gravitate back towards the middle of the Bible and start thumbing through the Psalms. And it doesn't take long. Sooner or later, you'll find something that resonates with where you are in your life situation. And you know, I'm so thankful that that is the nature of the living Word of God. God's always got something to say to His people. I promise you that. And if you're looking for answers, I promise you, you'll find them in the Word of God. And so oftentimes you'll find it tucked right here in the chapters of the book of Psalms. So as we embark upon this, uh, I, I just want to encourage you to take the time to uh, read through the Psalms and um, familiarize yourselves with those. Uh, go back and reread the passages that I'll be preaching over the next several months as we go through the series. I will put your mind to ease. I, I don't think I'm going to be preaching all the Psalms. Uh, I know some of you are thinking, my goodness, it took him for eternity to get through Acts. So relax, okay? We'll just let God select certain ones that will speak to our hearts. So when we think about the, the book of Psalms, it is a, a book of praise. In fact, the title, Psalms in the Hebrew, that word means praise. And the book itself is inspired by God to bring praise through the hearts and the mouths of His people back to Him. It's a book that He... Uh, inspired and put on the hearts of men to write that would in, in essence bring praise back to him. So when we think about the book of Psalms, and if you were looking in the Hebrew version of the Bible, it would say the book of praises. And then in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, we find the word Psalm. And, uh, and, and it's interesting because in the Greek language, the word that uh, the verb for uh, that, that the noun for psalm is taken from, that verb actually means the plucking motion of a musical instrument, like when Pastor Chad is playing his guitar or Amy is playing the piano, though she's not plucking the strings, the keys are doing that. But, but the idea is this book of praise is designed originally to be used in the context of music and with music. In fact, you might say that to the average Hebrew Jewish worshiper, the book of Psalms was their songbook. 
Kind of like our Baptist hymnal. Now, I'm not saying our Baptist hymnal is inspired, but to some Baptists it is. But the book of Psalms is actually designed as a book to be incorporated with music to help the people to joyfully and to uh, uh, reverently bring praise to God in music. And so oftentimes you'll find some of the headings of the Psalms will say to the choir director or, you know, making reference to certain musical instruments. And so we may even try our hand at singing one of the Psalms or I don't know how that would work. I don't, uh, we have to find the music. But, you know, I know there's some songs, I believe Psalm 42, that has been put to music and is a beautiful praise hymn. And so uh, you can't think about Psalms without thinking about music. No doubt about it, it is the longest book in the Bible, making made up of 150 chapters, and um, it is the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. Uh, and so it, is, uh, it carries a lot of weight, not only in the old pages of the Old Testament, but in the New Testament as well. Charles Spurgeon said this about Psalms. He said, The book of Psalms instructs us in the use of wings as well as words. It sets us to mountain and singing. In other words, when you're caught up in the Spirit of God and you're reading through the Psalms, there are beautiful words of worship and praise. But the Spirit of God, if you're caught up in worshiping God in the Psalms, they can elevate you up towards God and cause you to have such a worshipful attitude in some of the Psalms. Not, not all of the Psalms, because as we'll see, Psalms comes with a great variety and different types of moods and different types of circumstances. The time frame that's covered in the book of Psalms goes back as far as Moses, who is one of the attributed authors, which would be back around 1410 B.C., all the way up until the return of the Jewish people from uh, exile in Babylon, in Babylon, which is a span of about 900 years if you're talking about the authors. We have authors, uh, the book of Psalms is not authored by one author, but several authors. And probably the most famous of the authors of the Psalms is King David. We often think about David in writing like the 23rd Psalm and those beautiful pastoral Psalms. David is attributed with the authorship of 73 of the 150 Psalms. So you can see he carries a lot of weight as far as his influence upon this wonderful book uh, that so inspires us. Other authors are the sons of Korah, uh, Asaph, Solomon, uh, as I said, Moses, uh, Heman, and Ethan, among the authors that uh, are given credit for writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The 150 chapters making up the book of Psalms are divided up into five separate books. And some people have, and some scholars have, have said this was intentionally designed to correspond with the five books of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Now, all the Psalms in their, in their uh, genre are poetic. But the problem is, so many times we think about poems, we think about English poetry with rhyme and rhythm. Whereas in the Hebrew culture and their language, poetry is written thematically. It follows a theme. And you'll see that in the Psalms as we walk through that. 
And so the Psalms are written uh, poetically. Um, Some are acrostic. In other words, they will follow uh, in a very organized manner. The the theme will follow the Hebrew alphabet. In other words, something like Psalm 119. Uh, Each of the sections will start with a separate uh, consonant of the Hebrew alphabet until all 22 consonants are represented there. Some people have suggested that this was designed so people could memorize the scriptures better. And that was a big part of the culture of the ancient Hebrews was to memorize the word of God because it was passed along in an oral tradition. So if it would help you to remember the scriptures by plugging in the alphabets, then that would certainly help. So that was one of the reasons there. As I said, there's a wide variety of themes that we'll find as we go through the book of Psalms. Themes that range from uh, wisdom writings uh, as Psalm 1 that we'll be looking at in just a moment. There are some Psalms that are just pure words of wisdom to guide people. Very much like we think in terms of the Proverbs. Uh, Then there are Psalms that... uh, would reflect uh, lamentations, uh, a, a deep, somber mood. There would be psalms of, uh, that are penitential. In other words, they are, they're expressing uh, penance uh, and, and confession and repentance. Many of the psalms are messianic in theme. You'll see a lot. In fact, one of the uh, Bible commentators I was reading says, we see more descriptions of Jesus Christ in the psalms than we do in the New Testament. Because of the prophetic language of the Psalms speaking of the coming of the blessed Messiah. And then there's a theme of the theme of kingship. Whether it's talking about their great king David and and the other kings of Israel. Or the theocracy of God as the great and ultimate king over all of Israel. One of my favorite uh, commentators of the Bible, Bible scholars if you will, uh, the late great Dr. J. Vernon McGee. I, I love reading his writings because he's just like a country boy turned loose with the Bible. But I like what he said about the Psalms and I'll share this in this opening. He said the Psalms record deep devotion, intense feeling, exalted emotion, and dark de- dejection. They play upon the keyboard of the human soul with all the stops pulled out talking like an organ. It is the only book which contains every experience of a human being. The Psalms run the psychological gamut. Every thought, every impulse, every emotion that sweeps over the soul is recorded in this book. End quote. So you see, if you're looking for a good devotional tool, you can just about guarantee, no matter what you're the range of your emotions are, what your experience is that day, you'll find something in the Psalms that probably will resonate with where you are emotionally, whether you're in a time of great praise and joy-filled and, and caught up in the Spirit, or maybe you're down in the dumps and things aren't going well and everybody's turned against you, and maybe you're under a great conviction of sin and you're, you're feeling unworthy before God, and you can go back and read in some of the Psalms of penance. So there's something in the book of Psalms for everyone. Over the next several months, I hope to draw just from a sampling of the book of Psalms enough that we can gain an appreciation for this wonderful book 
and uh, bringing out some of the valuable and timeless divine truths that we find given in this. In fact, I've entitled the, I don't usually go at titles, but I just, for some reason, God just put on my heart that we would just call this series of messages from the book of Psalms simply Life Lessons from the book of Psalms. I believe there's some wonderful God-given lessons for living life that God wants His people then, thousands of years ago, and His people today. You know, the Word of God is an ancient manuscript, no doubt about it. But you know what? It's never outdated. It's never old-fashioned. God's Word is living and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword today, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joint and marrow. And even in the 21st century, it is the discerner of the intents of the heart. God's Word has something to say to His people of all ages, and it will through all of eternity. Amen? I believe even in heaven, we'll be reflecting upon the wonderful Word of God. And it will be a part of our great worship even there. Except we'll be getting the updated version there too. So today I want to logically begin with chapter 1 of the book of Psalms. And I would, we've already read it in our, our responsive reading. But I'd like for us to take another look at this uh, short chapter in, in the beginning of the book of Psalms. Some scholars have said that the chapter 1... Set, is set apart and it is basically an introduction or preface for the whole book of Psalms. And that would make sense. In other words, the theme that we'll see here as we walk into chapter 1, we'll see that this theme plays out in some way, shape, fashion, or form all the way through the book of Psalms. Because we're talking about God's plan for humanity and how we are to respond to God according to His perfect will. So as we begin in chapter 1, verse 1, Blessed is the man. And, we, and let me just stop there because some of you may recall when I uh, preached through the Gospel of Matthew and we settled in on the Sermon on the Mount and, and, and of course there in the wonderful Beatitudes, that word blessed was used over and over and over and over uh, by the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is a, it's a wonderful word. It's, it's a significant word. Because it talks about the condition of a person who is rightly related with God. You are blessed, or blessed, however you want to pronounce, if you walk with Christ. If Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you've been saved. You're under the blood of, of Christ. You're in the hands of God. You are blessed. And the word means happy, blissful, extremely content in God. No matter what your circumstances are. Just the fact that you are a child of God makes you and me blessed. So he starts out and he just said, blessed is the man. What kind of a man? What makes that man blessed? Who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Psalm 1 is a didactic psalm. In other words, it contrasts the way of the godly against the way of the ungodly. And you'll see that, like I said, played out through the Psalms as it's contrasting God's blessings upon those who walk in, by faith in Him against God's judgment upon those who choose not to walk 
in favor with the Lord. And so we'll look at this here uh, as we walk through this, this, this chapter. You'll see the contrast between those who are associated with God and those who are not associated with God. What makes this man blessed? First of all, it's his disassociation with the ungodly. And, and, and we want to make this as generic as possible. It's not just talking about men. Well, I would like to think that we're talking about all the people who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ. All those who seek to follow in the teachings of the Lord and are living in, in righteous and godly ways. So, first of all, the delights of the righteous as we look at uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And so, you know, I was thinking this, I was... I was studying and, and, and meditating on this chapter back last uh, last year. Uh, my dad had been hinting to me. Uh, those of you that are guests, my dad is 88 years old. He's a retired tobacco farmer and still there on the farm. And uh, he was telling me that his old Bible was wore, worn out. In fact, his expression was worn slap out. And um, and and he said too. He says, the letters are a little small. He says, I hear they got these large print. And so he sent me on a mission to see if I could find him a new Bible. I'm going to tell you something, that's very humbling. When your daddy, your spiritual mentor, tells you, go, go get me a new Bible. You know, there's uh, just a wide ver- variety of Bibles out there. But I, I finally found one that I thought he would like. It had the large print. It had the, the index uh, sections where the books of the Bible, he likes that, where he can just quick, you know, thumb through the uh, books there. So I uh, had that. And then there's a part, there was a section in the very beginning of the Bible that uh, had some place where you could write. And I thought, well, what, what could I write? I mean, what could I write in my dad's Bible that would be meaningful, that would reflect uh, you know, all the years of my being with him and following under his spiritual mentoring and guidance. And the words came to me, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the way of the ungodly or stand in the path of sinners or sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night, and he will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, and he will bring forth his fruit in his season, and his leaves will not even wither, and whatever he does will prosper. And I said, that's what I got to write in my dad's Bible, because that is my dad. He is a godly man who has walked these years with God. And not with the, in the pathway of the ungodly. And I wrote those words in there. And I think he kind of liked it. He's not one to express his feelings and everything. But I, I think he kind of liked, liked it. So that is such a wonderful challenge to all of us. When we talk about the delights of the righteous. Number one. The persons who delight in the Lord are those who avoid the ways of the wicked, as we see in verse 1. You'll notice the, the, the progression of, of disassociation. He, he says the, the man who is blessed and truly happy in God, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't walk 
you know, with the, the, the counsel of the ungodly. He's not hanging out with them. He doesn't stand in the pathway. He doesn't pause and spend time with those who are unrighteous and ungodly. And he certainly doesn't sit down and fellowship with those people who scorn the Word of God and rebel against the Word of God. Oh, no. Because, you see, the wise person... The blessed person recognizes the futility of those who reject God's word. Over in Proverbs in chapter 14. In verse 12, he says, There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. You see, the Bible makes it clear that there are those that live in this world and back then that felt like there was a way that they could live and enjoy life and, and, and go for the gusto and everything would be great and it seemed like such a wonderful and tempting way and yet, despite its appearance, it was a way that would lead to destruction. You know, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus was talking about this when I was telling you about there in, in the Beatitudes and, and the Sermon on the Mount. But listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. He says, enter, this is his charge to those who would be a part of God's kingdom. He says, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. That's a message we need to get out into the world today because there are many people who consider themselves to be Christians, to be followers of Christ, and they're going the wrong way. They're following a very popular way, a very seemingly promising way, a way that is crowded with lots of people, and they're thinking, well, surely if the crowd is going this way, this must be the way to go. Go with the culture, go with the times. Go with your feelings. And Jesus says, oh yeah, there are many on that way and it's easy to go that way. Everybody likes you. Everybody will be accepting you. Go that way, but Jesus says, that way leads to destruction. Well, you see, the wise man, the blessed man, the man who is truly happy sees that and he doesn't walk in the way or the counsel. He doesn't stand in the way. He doesn't sit in the way of the ungodly because he realizes that is a very dangerous and destructive pattern. He also is one who resists the temptation to fellowship with the ungodly. Now, Paul made it quite clear in 2 Corinthians in chapter 6, verse 14. He's, he's writing to Corinthians who live, in, who live in a very pagan culture. And he's admonishing those early Christians. Listen, you have no business making your best friends, your closest, most intimate friends, those who are lost and unrepentant in their sins. Because Paul says, what, what fellowship does light have with darkness, righteousness with unrighteousness. And see, the blessed man understands that. He doesn't need to be sitting in the midst of those who are ungodly. He doesn't need to be walking in the way or listening to the counsel of those who do not know God. And that's a part of that blessing. Now, I know some of you are thinking, well, Pastor, how in the world are we going to witness? How in the world are we going to have an influence on the lost and dying world if we don't want to have anything at all to do with ungodly people. That's not what he's saying. That's not what Paul is saying. That's not what the Bible is implying. 
We need to be out there. My goodness, look how many sinners Jesus mingled with. Everybody. <laughs> Even his disciples were lost sinners at one time. And Jesus had no problem mingling with, with lost people, being in the midst of lost people, but he made sure that his closest closest friends were those who were like-minded with him. So should we. Not only that, but those who are blessed and happy in the Lord and content, as, as the uh, psalm implies, are, are those who depend wholly on the word of the Lord. Look at verse 2. But his delight. And I, I, I had to stop and think. We live in a time of pleasure and satisfaction and, and being delighted. Everybody wants to be delighted. And there's so many things to delight us. Whether it be our physical appetite or our emotional appetites or whatever. There's so many delights of the world. But what is it that really delights you? The blessed man or woman or young person who, who finds bliss and contentment in God is the person who truly delights in the Word of God. Spoken of as the law here. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He's not just flipping the pages and finding a quick verse and then saying amen and going to bed or, or going off to work or going and, and doing the activities or whatever. It's not just a, a, a quick flitting through the scriptures here or, or just reading a quick devotion. Meditating on the word of God. You know, it was important when God was calling Joshua to fulfill the shoes of Moses. And man, those are big shoes. And Joshua was going to be leading the nation of Israel as they moved into the promised land. What could God say to him that would impact Joshua with the seriousness of the duties that he had and to prepare him to be a godly man and a strong, courageous man? This is what God said there in Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. He says, but he says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it both day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Listen, the blessed person is a person who understands that the Word of God is absolutely essential to your daily living. To try to go out and, and, and tackle the temptations of this world, face the problems of this world, to deal with the struggles of the flesh nature. Listen, it takes great strength. It takes great wisdom. It takes a good spiritual appetite. And it means in, in not only just looking at the Word of God and reading the Word of God, but meditating upon the Word of God. Dr. McGee, J. Vernon McGee, I, again, country boy, he, he had a good country definition of that concept of meditating. He said, it's like chewing your cud. And he used the example of cows that get up early in the morning when the air is cool and the grass is cool and they go out and they graze and they graze and they graze and they're just stashing that, you know, the clippings of all that grass into in what is called their first stomach. And after they feel, I know it's lunchtime and some of you all probably salivating even now, but anyway, after they store up all that in their first stomach, then they go lay down in the shade. And I've seen this growing up on a farm. I've watched cows with amazement do this and they'll go find a shady spot during the heat of the day and that's when they finish breakfast. They just belch it up and get a mouthful at a time and they chew it again. This time they're just not just biting it off. This time they're really crunching it, chewing it, you know, and then swallowing it down. Now, that'll really make you hungry for lunch, right? 
So, so J. Vernon McGee hit the nail on the head. He said, you know, that's the way we ought to read the Word of God. Meditating is, is focusing upon God's Word and, 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 and spending time and letting it take, take hold inside of your mind. And listen, it doesn't mean that you do that just one time uh, during the day. You know, like some people say, well, I like to meditate early in the morning, you know. Or some people say, well, I, I meditate late in the evening when it's nice and quiet and whatever. Hey, guess what? We ought to be meditating on the Word of God all day long. Take a passage. You say, but my memory's bad. Well, I can identify with your brother or sister. But guess what? You can write that passage down on a, on a simple little card. You know, on your phones, you can record God's Word. Where you can be driving along, you hit that button and you'll play back that verse that you read this morning. And you can play that over and over or you can read it over and over. You get it in your heart and you meditate on it. You ruminate on it. You chew your spiritual cud. You, you get all that God can give you out of that word of God until certainly it becomes a part of you. Blessed is that man because his delight is in the law of the Lord. and He meditates on it what day and night all through the day. And that's the key to us achieving this sense of blessedness. He delights in the, he's delighting in the superiority of the truth of the Bible. And my goodness, how many of God's people today have that kind of passion for God's Word? We'll be probably looking at Psalm 119 later, but I want to just take you over there because I, I, I love that this is a love letter. Psalm 119 is a love letter. Not only is it the longest book of the Bible, but it is a love letter about the Word of God. And so, let me just take you over to Psalm 119, and I, and I want you to hold this up against your attitude of the Word of God, okay? The Bible. In Psalm 119, 162, verse 162, listen to the words David as he writes about the Word of God. Psalm 119, verse 162, I rejoice at your Word. As one who finds great treasure, I hate and abhor lion, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous judgment. Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. Lord, I hope for your salvation, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies, and I love them with them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and your testimonies, for all my ways are before you. What is your attitude about the Word of God? Is there some other manuscript? Is there some other book? Is there some other text that gives you more joy than reading the living Word of God? If so, something's wrong. You don't know the Word of God like you should because it should generate that kind of love in our hearts. Meditating on God's Word and His valuable truths in the Holy Scriptures is important for us as we move forward in our walk with God. But also as we look at verse 3. Blessed is the man who, who not only separates himself from the ungodly and also delights in the law of the Lord, but, but also, blessed is this man, for he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. These are the people that flourish in the presence of the Lord. A person who is godly, a person who has this deep joy and contentment in God is a person who is flourishing in the presence of God. They have access to God's abundant resources on a daily basis and they're under the watchful care of God. Look at the language. 
that the psalmist uses. He's like a tree. And you find this, you find this illustrated throughout the, the Bible. In fact, over in Jeremiah chapter uh, 17. In Jeremiah chapter 17. Listen to the similarity of the language that Jeremiah uses also in, in, in that metaphor of the tree. In Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 7, he says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the rivers, and will not fear when heat comes, for her leaf will be green, and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. My goodness, unlike the trees that are out there in the wilderness, and particularly in that culture, in that topography, it's desert country, and a tree that's out there in that dry, arid uh, uh, landscape is very dependent upon the rainfall. In other words, when it's a drought, the tree withers up, the leaves dry up, there's not, no fruit. And so that's the way a lot of people's lives are. But not the blessed person. Not the person who delights in the Lord. Not the, person, not the person who meditates on the Word of God. Because you see, God has done a work in their lives. You'll notice it says that He's like the tree planted by the rivers of water. There's an intentional act here. This is not a wild tree. I don't know how many of you get birds' contributions to your natural areas, you know. You have your flowers and your, and your, and your pine needles or your mulch in there and you, everything, the weeds out. And some bird accidentally I guess or just through nature plants a pine tree in your natural area you know or they may plant an apple tree or whatever but you know these are not he's not talking about an accidental tree he's talking about a tree that's intentionally planted by a major source of water who did the planting? God this is a man whose life has been planted by God by the spiritual resources of God so that he can continually, through the deep roots that have gone down. And you know, if you go to a section of, of the country, you know, uh, I know even just going out in some of the rural areas, you can tell where there's sources of water. A lot of times it's those willow trees. They, they, they find a source of water before you know it. And, and very seldom do you see a willow tree withering up. Even in, the, even in the highest heat, even in the longest drought, you look and see a willow tree will typically still have green leaves hanging off of it. All the other fruit trees and other shade trees be drying up and wrinkling up, but not a willow tree. Why? Because its roots have found a reliable, consistent source of water. The blessed person has been planted by God, close to the presence of God. He's in the presence of God. And every day drawing spiritual nutrients and nourishment from God. It doesn't matter what the weather is. It doesn't matter what the climate is. It doesn't matter what the spiritual climate or the emotional climate or the circumstances of his life. Because he's still, she's still going to be fruitful because their roots are buried deep into the presence of God. What about you? You know, when we're saved, we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I believe God transplants us. I believe He takes us from the wilderness of sin and plants us close to and within Himself that we might be able to draw the spiritual nutrients that we need to sustain us and to nourish us that we might be able to bear fruit. And that's what's happening here. He's enjoying the abundant resources of God. 
You know, Jesus used that same kind of concept as He's talking to His disciples. You remember in John chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus says, I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in Me and I in Him, the same shall bring forth much fruit. So you see, the way to be fruitful as a child of God is that you've got to be transplanted. You've got to be planted into the presence of God. And you must live daily with an awareness of God's presence and His resources and His love and His Word and His Spirit and seek your spiritual roots deep into the Word of God and the Spirit of God and the life of God. And, and listen, the Christ life will come forth from you. You will be fruitful. If you're not bearing fruit in your life, then you need to ask yourself, have I truly been transplanted? Maybe in my mind I think I am. Maybe I think I'm in the grove of God's blessings, but yet I'm, I'm still out there in the, in the wilderness and I'm still subject to the spiritual droughts of the society that I live in. Thriving with fruitful, healthy lives that glorify God. That's the life of a person who is blessed. In John, that same chapter, in John chapter 15, Jesus went on to say in verse 8, He says, Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. Did you hear that? Jesus has given us a clue. Do you want to know what pleases God the Father? Do you want to know that what makes Him smile, which makes Him happy? you want to know what brings pleasure to, to the heart of God the Father? Jesus says, is that you bear much fruit. That glorifies my Father in heaven, Jesus says. And He says, and when you are fruitful, that's evidence that you are one of my disciples. That's why it's important to be one of those who are blessed because look what he says there. He should be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth, in its fruit, uh, brings forth its fruit in its season whose leaf also shall not wither like the willow tree by the streams. But whatever he does shall prosper. Why? Why? Because he's doing the will of God. When you're in the presence of God and you're drawing your spiritual strength and nutrients from the Word of God and the will of, uh, of the Spirit of God, guess what? You're going to be in God's will. And when you're in God's will, God will prosper you. That's what He said to Joshua. You meditate on this book of the law and it will cause you to have success. It will cause you to prosper in your way. Joshua, you're here to lead a nation of wanderers to take over our land that I have promised to them since Abraham. This is a, a magnificent and, and mountain-sized feat. But he says, you can do it. You can do it. Because you're in my will. And you're meditating on my word. Okay, well he said that this Psalm 1 was a didactic psalm. We've talked about the blessed man. The man that is living in contentment in the presence of God and delighting in the law of God and separating himself from uh, affiliation with the ungodly and, and there's a deep contentment in his heart. What about, what about the unrighteous man? What about the ungodly man? Glad you asked. Because verse 4 turns the corner on that. We've talked about the delight of the blessed man. Let's talk about the demise 
of the ungodly. In verse 4, the ungodly are not so. In other words, this doesn't apply to those who do not have a relationship with God. This does not apply to those who do not walk daily in fellowship with the God of this universe. You want to know what they're like? You want to understand how God sees them? He goes on and describes. He's using some farm terminology here. He says, In stark contrast to the godly person who is faithful and fruitful and forever secure, the ungodly are virtually useless in the eyes of God, in their unrepentant and rebellious state. Despite their temporal appearance of success and significance, their ultimate destiny is ruination. Jesus talked about that. He helped people to see the contrast. You remember in Luke's Gospel, chapter 16, he talked about two contrasting personalities. A rich man who had it all. Prominence, power, money, possessions. He was just known as a rich man. And then there was a poor beggar by the name of Lazarus. And in the reckoning of the contemporary culture of that time, the rich man was, in, was probably right with God. That's why he was so rich and that's why he was so prosperous and all. So in everybody's figuring, they're thinking, oh, hey, rich man's got it made in this, in this life. And when he dies, surely God's pleased with him. So everything's going to be great. And old Lazarus, well, for whatever reason, probably some un- unconfessed sin or whatever, you know, he'll probably go into Hades or whatever. Boy, did Jesus turn things upside down in that parable when he says, and they died. And just like that, the rich man who had it all in this life found himself in the fiery pits of Hades, burning and yet not consumed, in agony and torment. And in contrast, Lazarus, in the bosom of Abraham, paradise, if you will, everything he could possibly need now supplied, comforted forever. Wow, what a contrast. Say, folks, things aren't always as they seem. I know sometimes Christians probably look around and say, why in the world is it here we are struggling and it seems like the more I try to live for God and do, it's harder and harder. And these these people out there that don't even give God time of day and they're living ungodly lives and they got more money than they shake a stick at and they got cars galore and boats and big houses and oh, it just doesn't seem right. Something seems mixed up. It is mixed up. It's called sin. And there are many people living in a spirit of deception. Going through this life thinking they've got it made. And one day they'll find out. As Jesus says, in the eyes of God, they're nothing more than chaff. Now let me explain for the young people. Because I don't think too many have harvested wheat. Growing up on a farm in the heat of the summer, typically toward the end of June, is when our our wheat harvest would come in. I know, you've probably seen some of these fancy farm magazines now where technology has certainly changed. The average farmer of wheat out there now has these million dollar combines that they set up in an air-conditioned cab with a television. And they, my dad says, his neighbor that has one such machine, says he actually doesn't even have to look to hook up the head to this big combine. This is a massive thing. He says he just sits up there in that air-conditioned cab with his TV and his radio and CV and everything and, and has a little joystick. And all he has to do, he has a computer that guides him. Tells him every step to hook up that big head so they can combine. Not so for your pastor, I promise you. 
Because my dad, being the frugal farmer that he was, found an old, dilapidated, second, third, fourth, and fifth hand wheat combine that you had to pull by a tractor. And he didn't just automatically thrust the wheat and bag it up or put it in the truck like you see in the farm magazines today. Oh, no. That's why my dad had eight sons. So he could rotate us sitting up there next to the engine of that old combine. Mind you, it'd be about 90 plus degrees out there with that engine right next to you blowing smut and chaff and you're bagging up the wheat and sending it down to shoot and just praying, Lord, get me off this farm. I'll even be a preacher. <laughs> no, I, not really. Not really. But to my dad, every grain of wheat was precious. Oh, heaven forbid that we didn't tie the knot tight enough on that sack of wheat and send it down. If that thing burst open and it filled, the wheat was out. Oh, that was not a pretty scene. He didn't want to waste not one grain of wheat. But ask him about the chaff. He just blew out of the back of the combine or up our nose. I mean, it's just a, it's the hull of the, of the wheat. It's the straw. It's the useless, you know, priceless. It's nothing about it that's valuable. It's, it's of no use. In fact, some, sometimes they just burn it. Isn't it interesting that Jesus would use that terminology talking about judgment? You remember when John the Baptist came on the scene and he was telling the people, you know, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he says, there's coming a judgment. And those who are ungodly will be burned like the chaff. You'll be burned up. Look what the psalmist says in verse 4. The ungodly are not so. They're not blessed. They're not content. They don't have the promises that the blessed man has. He says, but the ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. And in that day, they didn't even have the combine we had. They just had to go cut all the wheat, take it up to a high spot on the hill, and they would just take oxen and walk them around and, and crunch the, the grains of the wheat out of the hulls. And then they would take these big old wooden pitchforks and they would throw the wheat up into the air on a windy day. And the, wheat would, the wind would grab the chaff and all the useless straw, which is lighter than the wheat, and the wheat would fall back to the threshing floor and they'd gather up the wheat. And in that day, chaff, let it go. There's no, there's no use. It has no value. And the person who lives his life rebelling against God and ungodly and immoral and scoffing at the Word of God, listen, one day they will be in the face of this very God who created them. He will be their judge. And let me tell you something. They will be like chaff in His eyes. His, his glaring eyes and his blast of judgment will be like the wind that separates the chaff away that's a pretty grim prospect but in the eyes of holy God they are contemptible of no value in that time of judgment they are defenseless look at verse 5 therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous on that day of judgment when the God who created everything, the God who controls everything, the God who will determine the destiny of every soul, in that great throne of judgment, there will not be a leg for them to stand on. When, they, when God brings the charges against them in their ungodliness and rebellion against uh, uh, these ungodly, they will not stand a chance. That's what he says. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. They won't have a defense. They'll be pitiful 
in the sight of God. They won't even have a rock to hide under. You say, well, where's that got to do with anything? I picked up this passage in my study in Isaiah, and I'd just like to share it with you. Because in that terrible day of judgment, Isaiah speaks about it in chapter 2 of Isaiah. In chapter 2, verse 10, listen to what he says. He's talking about the ungodly, those who are outside of fellowship with God. He says in verse 10, Enter into the rock and hide in the dust. Talking to the ungodly, the rebellious, the unrepentant. From the terror of the Lord and the glory of His majesty. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled. The haughtiness of man shall be bowed down. And the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low upon the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up, and upon the oaks of Bashan, upon the high mountains, upon the hills that are lifted up, upon every high tower, upon every fortified wall, upon all the ships of Tarshish, upon all the beautiful slopes. The loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be brought low. And the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day but the idols shall he shall utterly abolish they shall go into the holes of the rocks talking about the ungodly and into the caves of the earth from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily in that day a man will cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold which they made each for himself to worship to the moles and bats he'll give his idols away to the critters to go into the clefts of the rock, into the crags of the rugged rocks from the terror of the Lord and the glory of His majesty when He arises to shake the earth mightily. Listen, I think about all the arrogant, self-made, ungodly people of this world, atheists, agnostics, and all of those who are absolute enemies of the, of the gospel and how arrogant they are in their empires. Some of these some of these communist nations, some of these people that are sitting on their financial empires, thumbing their nose up at God. In that day, the Scriptures say, they will come into the very presence of the God who will judge all. And boy, they won't have a leg to stand on. No defense. They can't blame their parents. They can't blame the culture. They can't blame anybody and they will seek to hide from the terrible wrath of God and there will be no place for them to hide. No place to run. And they are defenseless before holy and righteous God. In verse 6, they're hopeless. I thought here you see that didactic nature of the psalm in that last verse. He says, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous and He does. That's what He's saying. He knows about this man who is blessed. He knows his daily activities. He knows his daily routines. He knows him. You know in the Bible that, that, that verb to know in relationship to God, when it says and God knows someone, it's talking about knowing that person intimately. Being in a relationship with them. And you remember when Jesus is talking in that, uh, the, the, the day of judgment and He says there will be many that will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this for You? Didn't we do that for You? And, and the Lord will say, depart from Me. For I never knew You. On one hand in verse 6, talking about the blessed man, He says, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. But, but, in absolute stark contrast, 
but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Not only will the person perish, but everything about the person will perish. All, you know, these people that, that, you know, that, that, that think they know the, better than God and they're, they're arrogant and prideful and, and they have no room for God in their lives and yet they want to build their little earthly man, uh, monuments. They want the bridges named after them or they want the buildings named after them and they want the libraries named after them and they want things that, that they think will survive for eternity to pass on the wonderful legacy. I got news for them. I got news for them. There's coming a day that not one soul will remember them. Every trace of the person and all of his or her accomplishments and all the things that they accumulated here on the face of the earth that they thought would give longevity to their name and their reputation will be utterly wiped away. And nobody, nobody will remember and nobody will care. God's judgment is fierce. It's fearful. And it is dreadful to those who do not walk with God. And this applies today. It's not one of those old book messages that applies only in the days of the psalmist. This is a message that everybody needs to consider today. So, as we close in the message today, I ask you, how does God see your life? Notice I didn't ask you how you see your life. In the eyes of the all-knowing and ever-searching intimate God, holy and just and righteous, how does He see your life? Would He look at your life today? The way that you live your life as a follower of Jesus Christ, if you profess to be that? And would He say, blessed, blessed is that individual? I pray that God will speak continually through your heart as you go through this week. Go back and meditate on these words and let God continue to speak to you. Because the most important decision we ever make on this side of eternity is what we're going to do with God and with His offer of salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. If you've not made the decision to put your full trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and to follow Him, I urge you, I urge you, just knowing this glimpse of what you've seen from God's Word, let God lead you by the convicting power of His Holy Spirit to put your trust fully in Jesus Christ Receive the wonderful redemption that He's made possible through His shed blood on the cross and be a part of those who are blessed, not just now, but for eternity.